0: THE FRENCH REVOLUTION, A HISTORY, by Thomas Carlyle, Volume 2, THE CONSTITUTION BOOK 2, NANCY, CHAPTER 2, ARREARS AND ARISTOCRATS This LibriVox recording is in the public domain, read by Peter Dan. BOOK 2, CHAPTER 2, ARREARS AND ARISTOCRATS Indeed, as to the general outlook of things, Bouillet himself augurs not well of it. The French army, ever since those old Bastille days and earlier, has been universally in the questionablest state and growing daily worse. Discipline, which is at all times a kind of miracle and works by faith, broke down then, one sees not with that near prospect of recovering itself. The Gardes-Francais played a deadly game, but how they won it and where the prizes of it all men know. In that general overturn, we saw the hired fighters refuse to fight. The very Swiss of Chateauvieux, which indeed is a kind of French Swiss from Geneva, and the pay de Vaux, are understood to have declined. Deserters glided over, Royal Allemande itself looked disconsolate, though stanch of purpose. In a word... We there saw military rule in the shape of poor Bessonval, with that convulsive, unmanageable camp of his, pass two martyred days on the Champs-de-Mars, and then veiling itself, so to speak, under the cloud of night, depart down the left bank of the Seine to seek refuge elsewhere, this ground having clearly become too hot for it. But what new ground to seek, what remedy to try? Quarters that were uninfected, this doubtless, with judicious strictness of drilling, were the plan. Also, in all quarters and places, from Paris onward to the remotest hamlet, is infection, is seditious contagion, inhaled, propagated by contact and converse, till the dullest soldier catch it. There is speech of men in uniform, with men not in uniform. Men in uniform read journals and even write in them. There are public petitions or remonstrances, private emissaries and associations. There is discontent, jealousy, uncertainty, sullen suspicious humour. The whole French army, fermenting in dark heat, glooms ominous, boding good to no one. So that, in the general social dissolution and revolt, we are to have this deepest and dismalest kind of it, a revolting soldiery, Barren, desolate to look upon is this same business of revolt under all its aspects, but how infinitely more so when it takes the aspect of military mutiny. The very implement of rule and restraint, whereby all the rest was managed and held in order, has become precisely the frightfullest, immeasurable implement of misrule, like the element of fire, our indispensable, all-ministering servant, when it gets the mastery and becomes conflagration. Discipline we called a kind of miracle. In fact, is it not miraculous how one man moves hundreds of thousands, each unit of whom it may be loves him not, and singly fears him not, yet has to obey him, to go hither or go thither, to march and halt, to give death, and even to receive it, as if a fate had spoken, and the word of command becomes, almost in the literal sense, a magic word? Which magic word again, if it be once forgotten, the spell of it once broken. The legions of assiduous ministering spirits rise on you now as menacing fiends. Your free orderly arena becomes a tumult place of the nether pit, and the hapless magician is rent limb from limb. Military mobs are mobs with muskets in their hands, and also with death hanging over their heads, for death is the penalty of disobedience, and they have disobeyed. And now if all mobs are properly frenzies, and work frenetically with mad fits of hot and of cold, fierce rage alternating so incoherently with panic terror, consider what your military mob will be, with such a conflict of duties and penalties, whirled between remorse and fury, and for the hot fit, loaded firearms in its hand. To the soldier himself revolt is frightful, and oftenest, perhaps pitiable, and yet so dangerous it can only be hated, cannot be pitied. An anomalous class of mortals, these poor hired killers. With a frankness which to the moralist in these times seems surprising, they have sworn to become machines, and nevertheless they are still partly men. Let no prudent person in authority remind them of this latter fact, but always let force, let injustice above all, stop short clearly on this side of the rebounding point. Soldiers, as we often say, do revolt. Were it not so, several things which are transient in this world might be perennial. Over and above the general quarrel, which all sons of Adam maintain with their lot here below, the grievances of the French soldiery reduce themselves to two. First, that their officers are aristocrats. Secondly, that they cheat them of their pay. Two grievances, or rather we might say one, capable of becoming a hundred. For in that single first proposition, that the officers are aristocrats, what a multitude of corollaries lie ready. It is a bottomless, ever-flowing fountain of grievances, this, what you may call a general raw material of grievance, wherefrom individual grievance after grievance will daily body itself forth. Nay, there will even be a kind of comfort in getting it from time to time so embodied. Peculation of one's pay it is embodied, made tangible, made denounceable, exhalable, if only in angry words. For unluckily, that grand fountain of grievances does exist. Aristocrats, almost all our officers, necessarily are. They have it in the blood and bone. By the law of the case, no man can pretend to be the pitifulest lieutenant of militia till he have first verified, to the satisfaction of the Lion King, a nobility of four generations. Not nobility only, but four generations of it. This latter is the improvement hit upon in comparatively late years by a certain war minister much pressed for commissions. An improvement which did relieve the overpressed war minister, but which split France still further into yawning contrasts of commonality and nobility nay, of new nobility and old, as if already with your new and old, and then with your old, older and oldest, there were not contrasts and discrepancies enough. The general clash whereof men now see and hear, and in the singular whirlpool, all contrasts gone together to the bottom. Gone to the bottom, or going, with uproar, without return, going everywhere save in the military section of things, and there it may be asked, can they hope to continue always at the top? Apparently not. It is true in a time of external peace, where there is no fighting but only drilling, this question, how you rise from the ranks, may seem theoretical rather. But in reference to the rights of man, it is continually practical. The soldier has sworn to be faithful, not to the king only, but to the law and the nation. Do our commanders love the revolution? Ask all soldiers. Unhappily, no, they hate it and love the counter-revolution. Young epauletted men, with quality blood in them, poisoned with quality pride, do sniff openly, with indignation, struggling to become contempt at our rights of man, as at some new-fangled cobweb which shall be brushed down again. Old officers, more cautious, keep silent, with closed, uncurled lips, but one guesses what is passing within. Nay, who knows how, under the plausiblest word of command, might lie counter-revolution itself, sailed to exiled princes and the Austrian Kaiser, treacherous aristocrats hoodwinking the small inside of us common men. In such manner works the general raw material of grievance, disastrous, instead of trust and reverence, breeding hate, endless suspicion, the impossibility of commanding and obeying. And now when this second, more tangible grievance has articulated itself universally in the mind of the common man, peculation of his pay, peculation of the despicablest sort does exist and has long existed, but unless the new declared rights of man and all rights whatsoever be a cobweb, it shall no longer exist. The French military system seems dying a sorrowful, suicidal death. Nay, more citizen, as is natural, ranks himself against citizen in this cause. The soldier finds audience of numbers and sympathy unlimited among the patriot lower classes. Nor are the higher wanting to the officer. The officer still dresses and perfumes himself for such sad, unemigrated soirees as there may still be, and speaks his woes. Which woes are they, not majesties and natures?' speaks at the same time his gay defiance, his firm-set resolution. Citizens, still more citizenesses, see the right and the wrong. Not the military system alone will die by suicide, but much along with it. As was said, there is yet possible a deepest overturn than any yet witnessed, that deepest upturn of the black-burning sulfurous stratum whereon all rests and grows. But how these things may act on the rude soldier mind, with its military pedantries, its inexperience of all that lies off the parade ground, inexperience as of a child, yet fierceness of a man and vehemence of a Frenchman. It is long that secret communings in mess-rooms and guard-rooms, sour looks, thousandfold petty vexations between commander and commanded, measure everywhere the weary military day. Ask Captain Damp-Martin, an authentic, ingenious literary officer of horse, who loves the reign of liberty after a sort, yet has had his heart grieved to the quick many times in the hot southwestern western region and elsewhere, and has seen riot, civil battle by daylight and by torchlight, and anarchy hatefuler than death. How insubordinate troopers with drink in their heads meet Captain Damp-Martin and another on the ramparts where there is no escape or side-path, and make military salute punctually, for we look calm on them, yet make it in a snappish, almost insulting manner. How one morning they leave all their chamois shirts and superfluous buffs which they are tired of laid in piles at the captain's doors, whereat we laugh, as an ass does, eating thistles, Nay, have they not two forage cords together, with universal noisy cursing, with evident intent to hang the quartermaster. All this the worthy captain, looking on it through the ruddy and sable of fond, regretful memory, has flowingly written down. Men growl in vague discontent. Officers fling up their commissions and emigrate in disgust. Or let us ask another literary officer, not yet, captain, sub-lieutenant only in the artillery regiment La Faire, a young man of twenty-one, not unentitled to speak. The name of him is Napoleon Bonaparte. To such height of sub lieutenancy has he now got promoted from Brienne's school five years ago, being found qualified in mathematics by Laplace. He is lying at Ozon in the west in these months, not sumptuously lodged, In the house of a barber to whose wife he did not pay the customary degree of respect, or even over at the pavilion in a chamber with bare walls, the only furniture an indifferent, bed without curtains, two chairs, and in the recess of a window a table covered with books and papers, his brother Louis sleeps on a coarse mattress in an adjoining room. However, he is doing something great writing his first book or pamphlet, eloquent, vehement letter to Monsieur Matteo Butafuaco, our Corsican deputy, who is not a patriot, but an aristocrat, unworthy of deputieship. Jolie of Dole is publisher. The literary sub lieutenant corrects the proofs, sets out on foot from Orzon every morning at four o'clock for Dole; after looking over the proofs, he partakes of an extremely frugal breakfast with Joly, and immediately prepares for returning to his garrison, where he arrives before noon, having thus walked above twenty miles in the course of the morning. This sub-lieutenant can remark that in drawing rooms, on streets, on highways, at inns, everywhere men's minds are ready to kindle into a flame. That a patriot, if he appears in the drawing room or amid a group of officers, is liable enough to be discouraged, so great is the majority against him. But no sooner does he get into the street or among the soldiers than he feels again as if the whole nation were with him that, after the famous oath to the king, to the nation and law, there was a great change, that before this, if ordered to fire on the people, he for one would have done it in the king's name, but that after this, in the nation's name, he would not have done it. Likewise, that the Patriot officers, more numerous too in the artillery and engineers than elsewhere, were few in number, yet that having the soldiers on their side, they ruled the regiment, and did often deliver the aristocrat brother-officers out of peril and strait. One day, for example, a member of our own mess roused the mob by singing from the windows of our dining-room, O Richard, O my King, and I had to snatch him from their fury. All which let the reader multiply by ten thousand, and spread it with slight variations over all the camps and garrisons of France. The French army seems on the verge of universal mutiny. Universal mutiny. There is in that what may well make patriot constitutionalism and an august assembly shudder. Something behoves to be done, yet what to do no man can tell. Mirabeau proposes that even the soldiery, having come to such a pass, be forthwith disbanded the whole 280,000 of them and organised anew. Impossible this in so sudden a manner, cry all men. And yet literally, answer we, it is inevitable in one manner or another. Such an army, with its four-generation nobles, its peculated pay, and men knotting forage cords to hang their quartermaster, cannot subsist beside such a revolution. Your alternative is a slow-pining, chronic dissolution and new organisation, or a swift, decisive one, the agonies spread over years or concentrated into an hour. With a mirabeau for minister or governor, the latter had been the choice. With no mirabeau for governor, it will naturally be the former. End of Book Two, Chapter Two